Welcome to Inside IR, a podcast series by Herbert Smith Freehills that explores the latest developments in the Australian industrial relations landscape. Hello and welcome to Inside IR, the Australian industrial relations podcast, the series that arms HR, IR and legal professionals with the latest in industrial relations thinking. My name's Rowan Doyle and with me today, we're doing this a little bit differently. We've got two, not just one, but two of my uh, partners, colleagues, from the HSF Industrial Relations team, Natalie Gaspar and Nick Ogilvie. Thanks, Rob. Uh, Nat needs no introduction, a regular on the inside IR couch. Um, Good to be invited back, Rowan. Great to be back talking about uh, industrial relations reform. And Nico, your first appearance on the couch, you've got round about now 25 years of experience in practice industrial relations, uh, heavily experienced in uh, aviation, transport, uh, manufacturing, construction, a whole range of industries. So really looking forward to having your insights on the inside IR couch today, Nico. Thanks, Ryan. It's been like being invited back with the cool kids at the back of the bus. So <laughs> happy with that. Thank you. Well, if you do well, you might be invited back. So look, as you know, uh, we've had a bit of a break from IR reform on inside IR. We've um, focused on enterprise bargaining tactics and looked at the issues that employers are having with the approval process of enterprise agreements. But we're now back uh, looking at, at industrial relations reform because on 2 December, we had the passage of the Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill. And by the time this episode goes to air, it will be an act, uh, we will have royal assent. And it does mark the biggest change in industrial relations that we've had since the commencement of the Fair Work Act. So it is a big deal. It is going to have a real significant impact on the industrial relations environment in Australian employers, and particularly on medium to larger businesses. Uh, it, is, it is going to change the way you approach industrial relations. Mm -hmm. There are also quite a number of changes that were made in the Senate, uh, Nat and Nico. Um, to be fair, I think they're probably better described as tinkering around the edges, particularly when it comes to medium and larger employers. Not a great deal of change and many of the concerns that have been raised by big business haven't really been addressed in these amendments. So um, we've seen a few positive changes which we'll come to a little bit later on. But it's fair to say the pendulum has swung and employers are going on the whole to find it a lot more difficult in engaging in enterprise bargaining mm. under this new regime. So today we're going to focus on three things. First, we'll start with having a look at why it is that employers have lost a little bit of bargaining leverage under these reforms. Um, we'll then move to having a look at the aspects of the bill that will cause employers to lose a bit of control over the setting of terms and conditions in their workplace and in how the process of enterprise bargaining runs. And then having admired the problem a little bit, yeah. we might uh, flick to solutions mode and have a panel discussion on what are the things that employers can do in order to reduce some of the negative implications of these reforms and maybe even take some positives out of them uh, to ensure that they're not forced into terms and conditions that are perhaps unsustainable. Mm. So we might kick off with yeah. you, Nat, if you can, great to hear your thoughts on the aspects of the bill that might actually make it a bit more difficult for employers to bargain and reduce bargaining leverage. Leverage. So look, gents, like any negotiation, enterprise bargaining is all about leverage. And I think going into any negotiation, you need to have an understanding of what leverage you have and who your opposing party, who you're negotiating with, what their leverage is. It's fair to say this legislation turns everything on its head, I think, and everyone going into enterprise bargaining negotiations needs to understand what that looks like. So 
Look, as it stands today, and I'm speaking just as the bill has passed both houses but not yet received royal assent, there is nothing in the Fair Work Act which compels an employer to give in to union demands in negotiations. So we have the good faith bargaining regime which regulates the process of bargaining but not the substance, not the bargaining outcomes. So what what we are seeing now with this new legislation is, or sorry, today in the current world, people, uh, parties to negotiations might bargain. If a claim cannot be sustained by an employer, it can resist that claim. As it stands today, the status quo is an option. So you cannot reach agreement, you can continue operating on your enterprise agreement, even if it's past its normal expiry date. Of course, the two, um, levers in bargaining as it stands today, which will continue, but I think um, this power will be diluted somewhat, is the ability to organise and to take protected industrial action. That's a fundamental part of the Fair Work Act and the bargaining system. And on the employer's side, its leverage is its ability to withstand and sustain that protected industrial action, either through the use of contingent labour or otherwise. That's changing and that's changing in a number of respects. So one of the key things that I think is changing is the introduction of the intractable bargaining disputes regime. So that regime means that if the parties cannot reach agreement on a particular matter during the course of bargaining, they go through that section 240 process and utilise the commission as assistance throughout bargaining and there's no reasonable prospect of reaching agreement in that, the Fair Work Commission can come in and arbitrate a dispute. So all of a sudden that, that dynamic, that power between employers and employees, the threat to take protected industrial action and the ability to withstand that is disrupted. We've got mm. a third party that you really need to take into account. And I know we'll come to this in the solutions mode, but that's both an opportunity and a threat in the bargaining dynamic. Now, there's a few other aspects of the bill when cobbled together um, bring about this change in leverage. I think a couple of the other important aspects is the basic impossibility anymore to terminate um, enterprise agreements that are past its normal expiry date. So what it really means is that an employer and cannot really go backwards, so to speak, unions and employees will be alive to that. So they, again, the status quo is, is sort of either set or, or moving forward. And we've spoken about that one before, but uh, that's an issue not just for those employers that actually were looking at making applications yeah. to, to terminate, but it's an issue for everyone because in our experience at least, it did influence behaviour at the bargaining table. Yeah. We did encourage unions to perhaps moderate claims, be a bit more reasonable, try and reach agreement. Whereas now, they will be emboldened to a degree because there's no going backwards. And worst case scenario, to your point, Nat, is you end up at the commission at the end of it and have an arbitrated deal. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a big change, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, the other thing that will compel employers to reach agreement and to accede to union demands is the spectre of multi-employer bargaining. Mm industry-wide bargaining. So one of the defences, again, we'll come to this later in the podcast, to being drawn into that stream is having an intern single enterprise agreement. Um, so uh, we've got that. We've got um, it's more difficult to make startup enterprise agreements. So all these things together mean that, I mean, again, this, this bill unashamedly secure jobs better pay. 
So in the bargaining leverage, why would an employer want to reach agreement, the things we've spoken about? Why would a union and employees want to reach agreement? What is that leverage? You really need to very carefully consider that going into the negotiation. Yeah, multi-enterprise bargaining is a big one. Yeah. And again, another topic we've been talking about for a while now. Um, I think we can say now, see, it's happened. Uh, it's not confined to the low paid. No. It's not confined to employers that haven't traditionally bargained. It's a dynamic we haven't seen before. We've had mm. single enterprise bargaining since the yeah. start of enterprise bargaining, but we haven't mm. seen, in a real sense, multiple multi-enterprise bargaining, the way that unions operate with larger employees potentially together. And how that dynamic plays out, it's going to take a little bit of time, but mm. it's something very new for practitioners in theory. Yeah. It is, and it's, it's something that employers are going to want to avoid because loss of control in that process, less say on the conditions, but also protected industrial action available, yeah. capacity to be forced into that process and dealing with industrial action across multiple different employers, maybe the supply chain. Yeah. So um, the suggestions that those concerns were overcooked or overstated, in my personal opinion, is just wrong. Um, these are legitimate concerns. We will see it happen. But as you say, Nico, does it depend on how unions uh, decide to utilise these yeah. newfound powers? And in a sense, I mean, there's still advantage to unions to trying to negotiate single enterprise agreements first, because like employers, unions will have a bit less control in the multi-enterprise stream right. as well. Because as we know, uh, in order to go to a vote in that stream, each of the unions must give written agreement to do so. Now, if any one of them decides not to, you can't go to vote. And we've seen in your past experience, unions don't always cooperate, even with a single enterprise. You've got two unions on the, with one business not cooperating whether yes. to go to vote or not. So you can imagine you know, bringing that across four different employers and five different unions, how that's going to play out. That's right. So th there is some advantage, I guess, to unions as well in trying to do single enterprise agreements first. Um, but one thing I'll mention just quickly before we move past multi-enterprise bargaining, one of the Senate reforms uh, is to enable effectively a bailout option in the event that there's uh, one or more unions or that are withholding agreement to go to vote, multi-enterprise stream. There is capacity to apply to the Commission for an order that permits a vote. But again, despite that, there's still very significant power given to unions, employee organisations in the multi-enterprise process. Yeah, it's really interesting. We're kind of harking back to when you started <laughs> practising, Nico, and, um, back in my know, day. common rule and being roped into wards. So, right. um, yeah, really interesting to have a sense of that leverage, but also what control an employer right. has and what levers they can pull. Thanks, Nate. If you think about the things that you've got control under the current system, at least since the Fair Work Act system, that employers have control over, one is that the terms of the EAA, you know, once they're voted on, that's that's what they're set. So mm -hmm. the terms of the EAA are there. Uh, there might be undertakings given as part of a boot test, but the terms of the EAA are there. You've also got control at the moment to a pretty significant degree on when you start bargaining, when you commence your bargaining process. So you can agree to bargain. You can get put through a majority support termination process or a scope order, which growth bargaining then starts. But on the whole, the, the start of the bargaining process and the timing of when you want to start is up to, is up to the employer when they issue the notice of representational rights. And, and the third one is, is how, what you've got control over is how much you let the commission into your process. You might want them to determine, arbitrate a dispute through a 240 process, but it's, it's by consent. Mm. So you've got a choice about how much you let the commission in to arbitrate those things. And then what the happens with the bill and the changes that are now part of the Act is those things have been taken away. So if you deal with the first one, for example, um, it, with a single enterprise agreement, it's quite now you can receive written notice from, an, from a union or a bargaining representative saying they want to commence bargaining. And that triggers bargaining. There's no choice in that process. Yeah. 
uh, and you, you're then required to comply with the good faith bargaining process, you, you're exposed to protected industrial actions. So it's, it's one thing that's taken away. What's interesting on that is that it applies to bargaining representatives. So yeah, it's right. not just unions, it, it could in theory be anyone yeah, yeah. that's been appointed as a bargaining rep. And you see with some of the larger clients that they've got wide ranges of bargaining representatives, people with single interests, something that they've mm. got a concern about. So yeah. there might be a workforce of 30,000, but there's one person representing himself or got their mum representing them as part of the bargaining as a bargaining representative can trigger that process and mm. require you to start. So yeah. that's something to play out. Um, the other part, I suppose, the, if you go back to the the terms of the agreement, as I said, when, the, when it's voted on, that's the terms of the agreement. So you've got control, you understand what they are, that's what's put to the employees and they either vote it up or they don't. Mm. Uh, now, uh, under the current system, if it doesn't meet the better offer overall test, you are able to give undertakings to address some concerns of the Commission. But under the new process, uh, the Commission has the ability to vary the terms of the agreement. The actual words on mm. the page can change. Mm. So not just an undertaking given where you end up almost like a, a discussion or a negotiation with the Commission to m meet their concerns. If the Commission's got concerns about the agreement, they can change the agreement mm. on the wording themselves. And that, I think that's a really important one, Nick, because I'm not sure about both of your respective um, you know, circumstances, but often that's a really iterative process yeah. as it stands today where you go back to the commission member and you say, would this amendment work and maybe this and that, um, whereas that might be truncated yeah, and right. terms arbitrated again that uh, are without outside of it, control. It still could be iterative. It depends how the commission approaches mm. this new process. But I think the biggest issue and the biggest change is that with undertakings, the employer either, either gives them or not. That's right. And if the employer isn't happy with how that iterative process ends and what the sort of final position is of the Fair Work Commission, the employer, at least in theory, can say, no thanks, I'll take this back to the bargaining table, yeah. take your concerns on board, and I might actually use some of the concessions that you're asking of the employer and negotiate something in return as well. Yeah. Now, that doesn't happen all that often, but it's an option. Mm. It and won't got, be an option. And you've got control these. over the words of that undertaking Correct. if you decide to give it. Correct. Rather yeah. than the commission process where they're required to mm. take into account the views of the parties, but... Those are the words drafted by the Commission, not by the mm. parties in, to the agreement. That's right. Um, the third one in the process, I suppose, is the, the ability to revisit the better off overall test during the nominal life of the agreement. So if there's a change in the employees covered by the agreement or the patterns of work on an application for the bargaining representative, the Commission can reconsider the better off overall test. So that's really, and again, go through the same, um, either accepting undertakings or varying the agreement in the terms of the agreement at that time. So again, taking away the control. So really uh, up to employers to think about not just the business as it is now, and what, but what it's going to look like going forwards. In the past, we had some certainty at the start of a three-year or four-year agreement. That was the words. And with the undertakings, that's what applied. And if the business changes, well, then it changes. But now there's an ability to revisit that, you know, potentially on more than one occasion, to go back and change the words of your agreement going forwards. Um, and again, we don't know what that looks like. We haven't seen that process before. And it really is, again, involvement of the Commission stepping in and taking the role of what the parties used to do in drafting words to meet their specific enterprises. And the third one, the last one, the fourth one, is really about allowing the Commission in to arbitrate a dispute. Now, we've always had a, a 240 process where if you had a, a, a dispute in the bargaining process, you could go to the Commission and then you could try and resolve it. And if it didn't resolve, the parties could walk away or the parties could agree for the Commission to arbitrate and that would form part of an agreed deal going forwards. Um, now, with the intractable bargaining process regime, which we talked about, you have the, 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 the opportunity for parties to take a position where there's no reasonable prospect of reaching agreement and which can trigger, amongst the other factors, uh, uh, the Commission arbitrating the outcome. And we, those words are interesting from my perspective. Um, the, the older practitioners would remember the old one, section, section 170 MW7, which was a, 
an ability for the uh, commission, so for parties to apply to the commission to terminate the bargaining process. Uh, and it was really to do with protecting uh, industries that were covered by paid rates awards, which was even before my time. So, mm. And so parties who had an expectation of paid rates awards, if they weren't able to reach agreement, it gave the mechanism for the commission to step in and arbitrate an outcome. Now, um, when you look at that, you look at the MX arbitrations which arise from that or workplace determinations on the old system, you're never going to go backwards. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, like it or not, if you look at those decisions, you end up somewhere in the middle every yeah. time. Yeah. And so the parties, parties had to bargain, position themselves so when they went into the bargaining process, they knew they were going to get somewhere in the middle. So they're not going to get everything they want, mm. they're, not going to get, they're not going to get nothing, but they're going to land somewhere in the middle. So clients have really got to think about how they enter that process. Uh, and it is, in a sense, it was, even under the paid rate system, it was easy to trigger because you could say, look, we have a insistence on a type of roster or insistence on a wage increase. And it had to be reasonable and it had to be open for you to agree on it. But you could dig in on that. And then the employers could say, these are two things, we're not moving on. Unless you, unless you agree to those two things, we're not, agreeing to, we're not going to reach agreement. Well, that's one of the biggest risks here, yeah. I think, because it, it could, on one view, embolden probably both sides in some Correct. respects to dig in and mm. maintain maybe even ambit claims in a way that they wouldn't under the existing Because you can see that the, the challenge is, you, you, if a union's digging in on a point, you either agree or mm. you, the, the alternative of not agreeing is you end up in, an, in a workplace determination outcome or an arbitrated yeah. outcome on, on, that, on those points. Yeah, but whether um, that's desirable for either party really yeah. depends on what you think the outcome's yeah. going to be. That's right. Yeah. And it'd be good to touch on that briefly because yeah. there was one change that was made during the yep. Senate process that hasn't got a lot of press so far um, but I found it interesting. It was an additional factor that's been added to what the Fair Work Commission must take into account in making workplace determinations. So not just intractable bargaining, yeah. but also the existing industrial action workplace determination process. And that additional factor effectively requires the Commission to consider the significance to employers and employees of any existing arrangements or benefits in an, in, in an enterprise agreement that's going to be replaced mm. by the workplace determination. Mm. So be interesting to see how that's interpreted, but uh, there's a real risk that that will be seen as maybe giving some precedence to the existing terms and conditions and making it even harder to wind them back or take them backwards. And if you look at an old example, a, you know, a offshore operator trying to introduce a four-on-four off roster, which was important to them, but it was significant to the employees that they kept mm. their two-on-two off roster. So if that's taken into account, that ends yeah. up as part of the arbitrated outcome. Exactly. You, you can't guarantee that it might be important to the employer to change that rostering or the pattern or whatever it might be, yeah. but they, there's a real risk you end up with if it's the union, unions and employees are able to show that's significant to them, that you end up with that as your outcome. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how the Commission approaches these sorts of arbitrations. We got a bit of an indication, albeit obviously in the current statutory context in uh, the Switzer full bench decision mm. concerning... Um, you know, that arbitrated um, lever and avenue and being quite critical of tactically using that. So it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out and particularly given the sort of discussion that we have, how AMBIT claims on both sides are treated throughout the course of bargaining. Well, you would hope that the, let's hope that the provisions are interpreted in such a way that parties that deliberately impose AMBIT claims and dig the heels in for the sole purpose of mm -hmm. reaching the arbitration jurisdiction, mm. let's hope that's a factor that's interpreted as meaning it's not reasonable yeah. to then make the determination. And we still, of course, have the good faith bargaining regime, which continues, yes. um, yeah. which regulates mm. the process of bargaining and can potentially be used in that um, context as well. Yeah. No, it's not, no. it's not difficult to envisage either side picking a couple of reasonable points mm. and saying we're not moving on that. 
and then, and then and if it suits them to have an arbitrated outcome, that might be it. You're not, and as I said, you're not going to go backwards. So. Well, that might be a handy segue to move into solutions mode. Sort of lots of problems that we've <laughs> talked about there. And they are, let's be frank, legitimate issues that employers are going to find rather difficult to manage. But we've been talking about intractable bargaining. Let's start there. Yeah. Obviously, um, agree with your point, Nat, this changes the game quite significantly and it changes the points of leverage through bargaining. So um, really, employers are going to have to be cognizant that their bargaining around may well end up in this place. And I think that um, makes it all the more important that the commencement of bargaining and, and probably well prior to really put in the work to be clear about what the employer's claims are and the objective justification for them. Because that is, it, it should be done now, but increasingly important under the new regime, that employers are able to justify their claims and give really great sort of evidence and reasons as to why they're necessary for the business going forward. But also look at the likely claims you're going to get in response and have really clear objective justification for that as well. Yeah. Because if you're disciplined in that process, pre-bargaining and formulating your positions, then it's going to be a lot easier to be in a position to respond to those things clearly throughout the course of bargaining. And then ultimately have a very clear and objectively reasonable position to put once you land in the Fuhrer Commission at the end. And, and that's where yeah, all that's that right. pre-work is, is going to become important and hopefully help you um, get yourself into a position where even the union can see that, well, they might be in a bit of trouble here. If they roll the dice and let this go into the Commission, the Commission might agree yep. with the employer that yep. all of this is actually pretty reasonable and um, let's make a workplace determination to that effect. Yeah. So that will, in effect, I think, become the employer's new leverage. Yes, we can't just hold out on industrial action, sustain it, and wait for the unions and employees to concede. Yep. That's not an option anymore. Um, but we can certainly come up with well-positioned claims yep. that encourage unions and employees to make reasonable concessions. And ultimately, they've got to be well positioned because mm -hmm. a member of the commission is either going to mediate or conciliate on those points and ultimately determine them. So yeah. Yeah. unless you've got that, that background work being done, the, you, those claims are not going, to be, not going to be successful going forward. Yeah, and it, it'll be interesting to see. I, I think there'll be a real gulf between the outcomes that employers can get that have engaged in that yeah. planning process and put in the work versus the outcomes that employers get who, who haven't. Yeah. And that'll be one to, to monitor when it comes to these intractable workplace determinations, really looking at that differential. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so important. Bargaining always, the line of communication with your employees, with your team about what you're hoping to achieve, that's not once every three or four years. That needs to be a constant communication about where you are as a business, what you need to achieve at an enterprise level. And again, um, in the context of not just intractable bargaining disputes, but the multi-enterprise stream as well. Yeah, that, that's a good point, Nat. So, so that together with the fact that you can no longer terminate EAs in bargaining, all of that really does change the bargaining dynamic quite significantly. So we do, in effect, need to throw out the rules of the old playbook and have a fresh look at our IR strategies and, and bargaining strategies. And multi-enterprise bargaining is a real significant issue. Yeah. And I think the first step is really testing for your organisation, are you going to be one of those employers that is susceptible to the multi-enterprise bargaining tests? Are you going to have clearly identifiable common interests with other employers? Yeah. Uh, are you going to be reasonably comparable businesses? And um, we can already see, I won't go through them today because maybe our clients that fall into those categories might not love that, but we can already think of clients and, and industries that 
are likely to fit within those tests. Yeah. And the main question then being, well, are the unions going to um, take advantage of this new, new regime and drag employers into it? And the flip side of that is there'll be other clients of ours that don't fit into these remote tests and there might be some advantages to them in pursuing yeah. conversations with the union about let's make an agreement now, yeah. let's get it done quickly so we don't drag you and us into that process as well. Yeah. That's right. And we do have a little bit of time. Employers will have some time as in-term agreements uh, still have some time to play out and, and reach their expiry. But in that time, it's really important that I think organisations know, are we exposed? And if so, well then having a clear plan in place for what to do to reduce those exposures. So number one, the easiest and best protection is an in-term single enterprise yep. agreement. So to the extent that employers can negotiate and um, have those agreements commence, ideally prior to expiry of the old one, then that's the clearest and cleanest protection. Uh, if that's not possible, well, then we need to look at at least getting written agreement with mm -hmm. the relevant unions to negotiating a replacement single enterprise agreement of the same coverage. That will also give protection. Yeah. Um, absent that, all of those things are very heavily dependent on unions and employees, of course. Yeah. So necessarily, we need a plan B. If you do think you're susceptible to these multi-enterprise bargaining tests and being forced into the process, then how will you then engage with that process? Yeah. For the first time, you might actually be at the bargaining table with maybe a competitor, maybe your labour hire provider, um, maybe a supply chain participant. Yeah. Yeah. So um, how will you engage with them in that process? And how will you engage with the union? How will the unions engage with each other? These are all things that require some pretty serious thinking ahead of commencement of bargaining in this new regime. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the other points, um, we've spoken about the Fair Work Commission having additional powers in this space, the conciliation um, stage, there's a number of touch points where the Commission can be a great opportunity to let off some steam and to um, have a voice of reason yep. within the bargaining stream. So one of those, you know, we know that um, it is compulsory to have a conference at the Fair Work Commission before a protected action ballot order is authorised. There's all these touch points for opportunity that I think need to be thought about and seized upon um, in this context as well. That's right, Nat. And another area that will require probably better planning that currently takes place in advance of those processes. You've called out the obligation to have a conference ahead of, as part of the protect and protected action process when a protected action ballot order is issued. That's one. Another is a 240 conference, yep. Nico, you mentioned, has to take place in order to give rise to a potential intractable bargaining workplace. And some of our clients are already very good at that process in terms of the long term, longer term strategy involving the Commission mm -hmm. in using a Section 240, not necessarily of itself to resolve a dispute, but to have it sort of almost like an education process and bringing the Commission along and understanding what their claims are. So, and some of our clients are very good at it, some of it is quite reactionary. So yeah. the ones that haven't been used to that process really got to think about it. Well, the real skill is going to be making sure that the other bargaining representatives at the table aren't treating this process as simply a, a box yeah. that has to be ticked. Yeah. That's right. Uh, rather, it's, it's effectively dragging them through the process and using this as an opportunity. The Commission can really help. Uh, I've had a range of matters where they've been extremely effective in helping the parties to look at things differently and come up with mutually beneficial solutions. And that's the opportunity here. Be the employer that, um, that encourages the other bargaining representatives to engage with the process yeah. and uh, make it clear that the employer is attending the conferences with a view to looking at reasonable concessions and properly understanding the claims, understanding what the real drivers are behind them 
and looking at alternate solutions that might be a way forward or a compromise. Now, yeah. if employers are doing that, it's going to be very hard to get to the threshold where the Commission decides that a deal is not reasonably possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it will actually make it quite hard for the unions to advocate for the Fair Work Commission progressing to the next step. Can I just raise one more? Um, I think it's really important to utilise the good faith bargaining regime. So that's that's a sword and a shield, right? Mm. I think it's really important yeah. throughout the bargaining process, particularly, um, you know, in the context where, you know, there's a, a desire to reach agreement as soon as possible, that there's not delay, that um, you know, meetings are held in a timely manner, that, um, you know, responses to demands are, are met in a timely way and, and examples like that. So I think that's another important point that employers should very carefully think about, be very tactical about and strategic and deliberate. And we still have those protections if those good faith bargaining orders are not complied with going forward. Yes. So it hasn't gone away. Now, protect industrial action. I haven't talked about that too much. Mm -hmm. agree it's perhaps less relevant than mm -hmm. it once was, but still very important as part of pre-bargaining planning to look at industrial action mitigation yeah. because yeah. there is a chance that the Fair Work Commission will apply a reasonably high threshold to the intractable bargaining regime and there's a good chance that they'll want to see that the parties have really given the traditional bargaining process a go yeah. before allowing the parties to come in and, and have terms and conditions determined. What does that mean? Well, it means bargaining participants using the tools available to impose pressure on each other, yeah. industrial action. Yep. So I think despite it perhaps being um, a little bit less relevant, we will still see industrial action being a regular feature of uh, enterprise bargaining and possibly almost a necessary one in the lead up to an application yeah. for an attractable bargaining workplace determination. Yeah. So what does that mean for employers? Employers still need to have very solid mitigation plans yeah. in place so that they can withstand that pressure and uh, try and get to the other end where they actually do have their terms arbitrated as opposed to having to concede in the meantime just right. due to pure force of that pressure. Yeah, right. So those strike play rules still hold um, and I think one aspect which is used very successfully by unions is the partial work ban. So there's different mm. strategies that employers can adopt in response to partial work bans. Again, I think that's something that warrants really careful. Oh, <laughs> Nick, you and I are still recovering from that. It's a complicated process and there's different inter intersecting principles that apply. So. Mm. So all of this is still relevant and industrial action workplace determinations, suspension and termination of industrial action, still there. Yep. Uh, perhaps less frequently used given the intractable yep. bargaining option, but uh, very much still a feature of the system. And the final point I'll mention is really investing in the better off overall test. Yeah. Because to yeah. your point, Nico, there is a lot more capacity for the Fair Work Commission to impose additional concessions on employers through the approval process without necessarily seeking their or obtaining their agreement to them and during the, let's call it the rebooting yeah. process yes. during the life of an agreement. So um, this should be done anyway now, but increasingly under the new regime, make sure that employers are aware of what aspects of the agreement might not pass the boot, both on current working arrangements and yeah. rosters, but also What's potentially in? future yeah. arrangements. Because if you decide that there's a change that might need to be made to pass the boot, that's something you can at least table, the bargaining table, and maybe even get some other concession in return yeah, right. for that additional commitment. The alternative, if you miss it, yeah. is that you get it imposed upon you through the Fair Work Commission process 
or later in the context of an application. And to you don't get anything in exchange it. for it. You just get a get nothing in exchange. It's always going to be an increase in conditions. So. That's right. Yeah. So th there's real value in that investment, I think, um, probably more so than under the current regime. So, I mean, there's some suggestions there. There's, there's plenty more that we could talk about um, if we had the time, but there's some next suggestions time. there for next time. That's right, Nico. If I get invited back. <laughs> oh, I think you will. I think you've cut the mustard. Um, but some suggestions there for work that employers can do to be ready for bargaining under the new regime. There are some difficult changes there that um, we'd, we'd, many employers would probably prefer to not be part of the system but there's opportunities to get ahead of them and in some respects even use them to advantage with yep. the proper planning. So our team is continuing to work with many of our clients on these issues so if you feel like you benefit from a conversation about the reforms or a tailored session please do get in touch and we have prepared a very handy practical summary of the changes which goes through them in a lot more detail that's available on our website so reach out to your HSF IR team member if you would like a copy of that summary. And finally, as always, we'd always love to hear feedback from our listeners on yep. Inside IR, Nat and Nico. So feel free to get in touch, insideir at hsf.com, or feel free to send us a direct message on LinkedIn or email to your usual contact. Otherwise, thanks for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you on our next episode of Inside IR. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com, for more insights relevant to your business.